Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. This is the second part in a two-part special on the Watergate scandal. In the first part, top historian of modern America, Dominic Sandbrook, um, futilely attempted to deal with the whole topic in a single episode. Um, We went through the life of uh, and career of Richard Nixon, um, and then we started on the countdown to the the break into the Watergate complex to um, bug the Democratic is it party convention? It's the Democratic it? it's the party, National it? Committee. Democratic Party headquarters. Yeah, so they're basically yes. Democratic yeah. Party headquarters. Yeah. Okay. And so they, they've been, <laughs> the people doing that have been caught red-handed. Nixon has said, we've got to try and cover it up. This will be the smoking gun. And now, Dominic, we can get back to the action yeah. and the countdown to what will be ultimately Nixon's resignation. But I'd like to, to, to kick off with a question from Stephen Wills who asks, when did Nixon know the game was up and was there any chance he could have stayed? So that's the kind of the the context for what over the next, what is it, year and a half, Nixon's attempt to stop this from destroying his presidency. Well, first of all, um, I never really intended to do it in an hour. I was lying when I, (laughs) I always thought it would take two episodes. I mean, if we could do two episodes on Thermopylae and Salamis without even mentioning Thermopylae and Salamis in the first episode, we could definitely do two episodes on Watergate. Now... Uh, when did Nixon know the game was up? He's not going to know the game is up for two more years. I mean, this is a what, in the first episode, somebody asked, you know, why is Watergate so resonant? Why is everything? I mean, it's partly because it goes on so long. So, yeah, June um, 17th of June, 1972 is when the the second burglary happens that is detected and the, the burglars are caught. So we talked about that last time. The 23rd of June, 1972, is when Nixon says to his chief of staff on tape, um, we have to basically abuse our powers, get the CIA to stop, get the FBI to stop the investigation, stop it going higher up. And then what happens, really interestingly, is kind of nothing for six months or more. So the in which time he wins the election, he romps home in the election. And as I said last time, he celebrates by sitting on his own. (laughs) listening to music in his sepulchral, sepulchral gloom and writing on a pad about what all, all the nasty things that people will say about him. So he's very bitter. He's actually really bitter after he's won this election. Um, you, you described him as a Shakespearean figure. Yeah. And I, I suppose that sense of you know, absolute crushing success, victory, affirmation, while at the same time, you've got this scandal, which is like a kind of little hint of dry rot Absolutely. in the wall. That's, that's <laughs> it's exactly. going to slowly spread and spread and spread and nothing he can do. That's to exactly right. One of his stop. aides later on, John Dean, who we'll come to, um, describes that he says to Nixon at one point, there's a cancer on the presidency and it's growing. And it's actually not a bad image. It's something very small, almost imperceptible at first, a nothing story. But as you say, it's going to grow and grow and grow and consume him. So November 1972, he wins this crushing landslide. January 1973, he is inaugurated uh, for the second term. And they get peace in Vietnam, which they've been waiting for all this time. So it looks okay. And all this time, they have been paying off the burglars, by the way. 
they have given them, I think, something like four hundred and thirty thousand dollars from. Well, what, have the have the burglars? Not yeah, been they've been arrested, but they need to be told. They, someone's got to pay their legal fees. These are not rich men. So someone has right, and also are they being paid to? to they're being keep basically quiet paid about. to keep quiet. Loss of lot, they're described as loss of earnings, um, because mm-hmm. <laughs> loss of earnings through being in prison. Um, yes, exactly right. But in January 1973, so at the same time that Nixon is having these tremendous triumphs, uh, they are convicted, obviously because they're red caught red-handed, and they're going to be um, sentenced. In March 1973. So the question for Nixon is, if they keep quiet, and if nobody really digs into this, he can probably get away with it. But all it takes is one of them to break. Or all it takes is somebody to start really following the money and so on. And he'll be in trouble. Now, the Washington Post, the Woodward, Carl Woodward, no, Carl Bernstein, rather, and Bob Woodward, uh, have been writing about following the money trail. They have an informant in the FBI called Deep Throat, who turns out to be the... Okay, I think, I think we've got a question. Oh, very good. Can somebody ask um, who came up with the, the name Deep Throat? Uh, I don't actually know who came up with it. I did know, but I've forgotten. So Deep Throat is a, a porn film from the early 1970s. Yeah. And um, the guy is Mark Felt. He's the deputy FBI director. He's not a friend of the White House. The funny thing is, actually, there's this huge sort of hullabaloo when it turned out to be him. But actually, the Nixon White House had always known he was leaking to the press. So it's actually not that great a story. Um, there's all this stuff that Woodward and Bernstein kind of rather ham up in their book about how they signaled to him with flowerpots on windowsills and kind of ringed. I mean, that's very, very much the sense you get from all the president's men. Yeah, from men, all the president's men. Yeah, the but actually, the Woodward and Bernstein thing is not the thing that brings Nixon down at all. What brings him down, um, prob- you could arguably the moment, is, um, well, here we go. It's, it's, it's a, a period of, of two two, three days, really, in March 1973. So on the 21st of March, the White House counsel, that's the White House lawyer, a man called John Dean, who's a young, clean-cut kind of Republican, a classic kind of party political hack, mm-hmm. who's basically you know, worked his way up and got his job. He goes in, he's been handling the cover-up for Nixon. And he goes in and he says this thing about there's a cancer on the presidency. He says, basically, a lot of people have perjured themselves, saying they don't know anything, they don't know where it goes. And we're going to run into trouble because soon the burglars are going to be sentenced, sent to prison. We're going to have to find more money for them and possibly money for other people if this goes up the chain. And there's this dreadful conversation again on tape. Uh, he's, Nixon says, how much do you need? And Dean says, um, we'll need a million dollars in cash. Very Austin Powers. And Nixon says, a mil- million dollars. He says, a million dollars. I know where that can be gotten. Um, which is kind of very, it's very incriminating. So at that point, they, they have the first conversation. How far, who are we going to lose? We're going to, oh, we'll lose him and him and him. And at that moment, John Dean, this White House lawyer, can feel the kind of chill on the back of his neck because he thinks... Well, I've been the guy who's orchestrating this cover-up. Yes, yes. Maybe they're going to come for me. And this is actually where the social mix of the Nixon White House, I think, is really interesting and important. Because I said in the previous episode, lots of these people are outsiders and self-made men. They have a lot to lose and no real way back if it goes wrong. They're not members of boarding school old boys groups, gentlemen's clubs. They're not part of the Washington kind of establishment. So if they go down, there's no ladder out for them. 
and and that's why it, there's no sense of kind of solidarity among them i think which there, there might is have a question been. yeah there's, there's a question from the church mouse could nixon have survived if it had been handled differently e.g the trump method of hanging others out to dry but denying nixon knew about it instead of trying to cover it this up? is exactly what no. they do tom this is exactly what yeah. their plan is so that's the 21st of march the next day dean gets sent nixon sends dean to camp david and he says i think what you should do is write a report for me about everything you know about the cover-up now at that point when the president tells you to do that you kind of think oh that that doesn't sound very good because does he want me to incriminate myself does he want me to lie about what's going on Mm -hmm. here the very day after that the 23rd of march the judge is sentencing the burglars and the judge gets up in court and he says publicly in open court in front of the press he says um i've been handed a letter by one of the burglars james mccord and he reads out the letter. The letter says, we've been put under political pressure from the start. This was never a CIA operation. That's not true. People have perjured themselves in this um, investigation. And other powerful people knew about this and were behind it. And you can imagine the, the you know the report is that hubbub in court. Yeah, it's that classic scene of like oh, Hollywood. Rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. Right. Running people yes, running, rushing off for the phone. They are rushing, they, but they literally are rushing yeah. for the phone. Yes. This is just absolutely unbelievable. Um, so then things start, now things start to unravel in a really interesting way. So the 6th of April, so a little bit, just a couple of weeks later, John Dean, Nixon's White House lawyer, decides, I need a lawyer of my own to represent me. And behind Nixon's back, he starts talking to a Senate committee that has been set up to look at campaign irregularities in 1972, called the Irvin Committee. So he starts talking to them, and he starts talking to the prosecutors. So we're in April 1973. Nixon's first term has only really just started. But already things are starting to um, unravel. And throughout the course of this month, there was a series of meetings. Nixon and his aides, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Dean, they're kind of sitting around saying... How are we going to stop this? You know, who's going to take the fall? And and with each meeting, it becomes more and more obvious that of those four men, three of them are going down. And the only question is whether they're going to take Nixon with them. So it's like the end of succession. It is. It's very succession-like, actually. Yeah. It's very yeah. succession-like, yeah. except Nixon is much more shambolic and ham-fisted yeah. than kind of Brian, what's his name? Uh, Logan Roy. Logan Roy. I yes. love Logan Roy. Anyway... <laughs> So um, by the end of April, Nixon now knows that Dean is talking to the prosecutors and all this sort of thing. And he thinks the only way I can deal with this um, is to uh, is to get rid of all of them. The lot, basically, my 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 closest aides. And there are these incredibly kind of tear stained conversations almost where nixon says to so if it's like a cancer this is full operate you know yeah amputation they've all got to go i didn't know anything yeah. but they knew everything it was nothing to do with me so they all go it's, it's, this is we, we talked about nixon and quakerism in our uh, last episode Haldeman says this is the only time that he and nixon never physically touched so quakers you know don't approve of excessive physical contact and nixon only ever shook hands with Haldeman after he'd basically fired him he sort of said, oh, Bob, you're a great man. I'll miss you and shakes his hand. And it's very, you know, Nixon's very Gordon Brown like, Tom. I don't think that's a, mm-hmm. an unfair comparison. I think he's like a sort of more 
um, a sort of darker, more more sinister version of Gordon. A trickier. Brown. Yeah, trickier. Okay. Exactly. So at that point, uh, Nixon's presidency has kind of been amputated. He's lost his key. He's only got Kissinger left, really, of the people he ever relied on. But Kissinger is desperate to kind of keep his distance from the Watergate issue now. Kissinger never knew. Has Kissinger been embroiled in this? No, he hasn't. Although he did. He used to pester Nixon to bug his own staff to find out who was leaking. But Kissinger wasn't involved in the campaign irregularities or anything like that at all. So in some ways, Kissinger, certainly in foreign policy, is now just basically running the presidency because Nixon is spending all his time sitting up late at night, sweating and staring into the darkness and in a sort of very, (laughs) having these kind of interior Shakespearean monologues. Yes, yes. Uh, And Dominic, in terms of foreign policy, 1973 is quite a turbulent year, isn't it? It is. So, well, we're going to so come is to this, this all Tom. going on in the background? There is. There's lots going on in the background. Are you thinking about uh, the unravelling of the Ted Heath premiership? Is that what you're thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was thinking kind of energy crisis. Yes, a, a, we're going to come topical, to this. We will get, a, a topical oh, yeah, very topical. We're going to come to this. You'll see. So we now get to the summer of 1973. So this scandal is now very big news. And I said earlier there was a Senate committee investigating it. So the, one of the great things about this story is that the focus keeps moving from arena to arena. So it now moves to the Senate committee hearings, the Irving committee hearings, and they are held. They are on TV. They are in the, at the precise, the, the networks clear their schedules and put them where the daytime soaps would be. So it becomes a kind of soap opera in and of itself. 85% of Americans watched part of these hearings. I mean, that tells you just how the colossal impact mm-hmm. of them. And um, so you've Basically, and is Nixon saying that this is all the the uh, cosmopolitan liberal elite? Yeah, he is out to get it. Exactly that they they are bitter about the election. They've always hated him. Uh, he's he knew nothing about it. It's very unfortunate these things happen in the White House, but they had nothing to do with him. He would never. And we've got a question from the, from the McRae case. Nixon's misdemeanors aside, how much of Watergate was Congress getting its revenge for being sidelined over Vietnam and finally finding the chance to bear its teeth? There's a, I mean, it's, a huge so amount is, of truth in that, actually. So there's this phenomenon called the imperial presidency that people talk about. Um, uh, historians wrote about in the sort of 70s. They said the presidency has become more and more powerful since the Second World War and the Cold War and has accumulated power and taken it from Congress. And particularly after Vietnam, this is Congress's chance to reassert itself. And I think there's there's loads of truth in that. A lot of people in Congress are itching to take back power from the presidency. And they see the dirty tricks, the wiretaps and so on, and the surveillance as a sign of a presidency that has lost any sight of kind of constitutional responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really good um, question. Anyway, the hearings, there's two big moments. One is where John Dean, the Nixon's old council, White House counsel, um, goes along on, and this is in June, and he says, the president did know. He knew about the cover-up, and he says this live on television. He knew about it, and he was in on it from the start. And actually, it's a great sensation, but lots of people think Dean is a kind of a reptilian figure. So one columnist calls him a bottom-dwelling slug. Um, so And and, um, <laughs> and, and people Ooh, sort of say... Uh, not a very pleasant Dean image. is a very a sort of slick, smarmy kind of Republican... Um, operative and and some people distrust him they say maybe he's lying no maybe nixon didn't know maybe he's lying but then the great revelation a a flunky called alexander butterfield goes along to be interviewed on in july and almost by sort of random chance um somebody says there doesn't happen to be a taping system in the oval office just that oh no and he's and and he had he had decided you know beforehand 
I won't tell them anything about tapes unless they ask. And if they ask me a direct question, I'm not going to perjure myself. And he says, oh, well, now you come to mention it. Yeah, there is. And at that point, of course, you know, another sort of slightly run for the phones sensation. <laughs> yes. Because now you can find the proof. You know, now you can find out yeah. one way or the other. So at this point... So why had Nixon not destroyed the tapes? Well, that's what lots of people said. Why the hell did he not? I mean, even after the revelation, some people, some of Nixon, I think Alexander Haig, uh, who was then Nixon's chief of staff after Alderman, says, um, you know, I just said to him, get a massive pile of the tapes, put them on the White House lawn, pour a load of petrol over them and just set them alight. And then there's nothing they can do. Uh, But he's just paralyzed, I suppose. To destroy the tapes is an omission of guilt, right? Um, yeah. And he doesn't want to give because of. So is there a sense in which in which Nixon's I, I mean, it sounds an odd thing to ask, but is there still a kind of strain of the moral within Nixon that is struggling with his his worst nature? Hmm, that's a good question. Because, because it, I mean, if you're a complete criminal. Yeah. Obviously, you're going to get rid of the, the, the incriminating evidence on you. I mean, the fact he doesn't. Yes, I think that's that's a good point. He seems a surprisingly moral. He's thing to do maybe to some extent he's not it suggests it suggests a respect for the law yes well he keeps fighting the law um so i mean why doesn't he do it oh i think it's just he paralyzed he's he's paralyzed by indecision staring at the headlights yeah um but the weird thing is this then battle this battle then goes on for for months so now it's about the tapes so now yet another sort of antagonist presents itself. Nixon has been forced to set up a special prosecutor. Um, and it is, I mean, you talked about Kennedy being his worst nightmare in the last episode. The special prosecutor is, if you went into Richard Nixon's nightmares and you got somebody who would be, you know, just the ultimate bogeyman, you would find a man called Archibald Cox. Archibald Cox went to... Um, boarding school an east coast boarding school he wears a bow tie he went to harvard which of course poor old dick nixon didn't get to go to because his family was too poor uh and he worked for the kennedys he was a kennedy lawyer and he worked in the Mm -hmm. kennedy white house so he's the special prosecutor and he says i'd like to see the tapes and nixon says no and then you have this months-long battle and eventually Nixon comes up with a... I mean, this is the deludedness, Tom. He should have burned them. You're right. What he says is, he says, um, I'll, I'll do a compromise with you. I will release the tapes, but I'll only release them to uh, one man who's a, uh, a senator from Mississippi called John Stennis, who's incredibly racist and reactionary and is also deaf. <laughs> he says, I'll, re- Genius. I'll release them to him and he can maybe make notes on them and tell you what's on the tapes. <laughs> That's not really how evidence works in court. No. <laughs> um, I mean, it's still not quite as good as Jeremy thought, but it's, no. so, it's um, getting there. So Archibald Cox says, no, that's not good enough. You know, you need to give me all these tapes. <laughs> Nixon says, if you ask me for the tapes again, because Archibald Cox is supposedly working for Nixon. This is the bizarre thing. Nixon says, if you give me them again, I'll, I'm going to sack you. Stop asking for my tapes. And Archibald Cox asks for the tapes again. So on the 20th of October, 1973, Nixon says to his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, fire Archibald Cox and shut down the prosecution, shut down the special prosecutor's office into Watergate. And Richardson says no. He resigns. Nixon gets his deputy on the phone, a man called William Ruckelshaus, and he says, fire Archibald Cox, shut down the special prosecution unit. And Ruckelshaus says no. He resigns. 
Finally, they come to the third man, who's a man called Robert Bork. He's got this sort of Mephistopheles kind of... Oh, who becomes... Uh, yeah, Reagan, Reagan nominates Court. him for the Supreme Court, and, and he, doesn't get, yes. he doesn't get in. He's got this yeah. partly because of this, because he's got this sort of Mephistopheles beard. He looks very sort of yeah. sinister. And um, uh, he says, I'll fire him for you. <laughs> and so he fires Archibald Cox. The White House sends people to seal off the offices and to, to sort of seize the evidence that Archibald Cox has amassed, which looks kind of shocking. I mean, the pub the, as a PR move, it is an utter unalloyed catastrophe that Nixon is basically sacking the person who's investigating him, trying to seal off his offices, take all his stuff and all this. Um, Nixon's approval rating plummets to 17% and he gets half a million telegrams, the highest in Western Union's history of people saying, you're a fascist, you're trying to you know, subvert the rule of law. And this is where your stuff about foreign policy comes in, Tom, because this is at precisely the moment that the Yom Kippur War is raging yeah. between um, Israel, Egypt and Syria, the war that is going to trigger the great OPEC oil shock and the energy crisis of late 1973. And at this very moment, American and Soviet ships are kind of steaming through the Mediterranean with supplies for their rival clients. Um, so Nixon is... So America is backing Israel. Yeah, America is backing, is backing Exactly. Arabs. And there's a sense, you know, this is escalating towards something completely out of control. Nixon has gone mad and is consumed by Watergate. On the 24th of October, so four days after the so-called Saturday Night Massacre, when they tried to shut down the prosecution, um, the situation in the Middle East is so bad that Henry Kissinger, with a couple of other kind of um, Nixon officials, behind Nixon's back puts America's nuclear forces on their highest alert, DEFCON 3. So it's, it's a really serious thing. But Nixon is not even involved in that decision because he's spending all the time sweating sleeping late um yep. drinking just in swearing in an absolute kind of, yeah in an absolute mess in an absolute mess uh so anyway world war three doesn't happen um the reaction to this nixon's move is so bad that he has to appoint another prosecutor a guy called leon jaworski who has working with him a certain hillary rodham later hillary rodham clinton ah, okay yeah um and finally nixon starts to release these tapes so the first tranche of tapes comes out in November 1973, seven tapes. And one of them, um, the one for the 20th of June, right after the Watergate break-in, has an 18 and a half minute, strange, inexplicable 18 and a half minute gap on it. Right. <laughs> and everybody says, well, what's this gap? Uh, Nixon's chief of staff, Alexander Haig, says, the tape must have been erased by a sinister force, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> And then Nixon, Nixon's secretary, Rosemary Woods, says, um, oh, I must have accidentally erased it by pressing the wrong button when I was leaning for the phone. And then basically the prosecutors make her do this thing which proves that she could only have erased it while reaching for the phone by doing this incredible <laughs> acrobatics across the room. So basically it looks like Nixon erased it himself in a very shambolic way. Um, Haig himself says, has said since, he thinks Nixon listened to the tape and tried to destroy the whole tape but made a mess of it because he was terrible with equipment he didn't know you know he's the classic kind of dad who doesn't know kind of how the video recorder works um yeah. so there's this 18 and a half minute gap which looks pretty bad but still the president he's still president it's still lingering on so anyone else would probably run away at this point and or just you know go into a locked room with a revolver and a bottle of brandy or something 
But Nixon is still there. He can't be killed. Keep going. They keep asking for more tapes. It gets to April 1974. Now Nixon says, well, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to give you the tapes. I'll give you transcripts. So he And he thinks, if I give them loads, then they'll kind of... There'll be so much, they just won't yeah, know what to do with it. The- yeah. He gives them 1,200 pages worth of conversations, but he has gone through them all, or had his people go through them all and take out all the swearing. This is the Quaker again. So all the, yes. the swearing has been taken out and replaced with expletive deleted. Um, and the weird thing about that, um, I think a lot of people, historians have written about this, is that... Um, Actually, Nixon's language wasn't that bad. But because of his Quakerism, he got them to take out damn, you know, yeah. uh, or, uh, hell, all the... So, it lo- so it's kind of, don't think of an elephant. Right. Oh, all the, all the swear words are missing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So everyone, yeah. yeah. Um, so, he's, so it's another example of the cover-up being worse. It, than it is, actually. This is a very good example. Yeah. Finally, the yeah. Supreme Court rules that he must surrender all the tapes. August 1974... Uh, he releases a load of tapes, and among them is the smoking gun conversation that we talked about at the end of the last episode, where he said to Haldeman, get the CIA to tell the FBI not to look into it. And with that, I mean, that he has sunk, because that shows that he knew about the cover-up from the very beginning, that he's lied about it ever since. There is no possible excuse. There is no way around it. Uh, the wheels of impeachment are already in motion. The House Judiciary Committee has voted to impeach him, and six Republicans on the committee have voted to impeach him. It's going to go to the Senate, clearly going to go to the Senate for a trial. Um, then you have these incredible scenes. So on the 7th of August, the uh, Republican Party's congressional leaders go to see Nixon. They basically say, Mr. President, the game is up. You know, you're not going to win a trial. You're not, not going to come close. You're damaging the Republican Party. You know, you've got to go. So then they, they go away, the Republican congressional leaders. And then there's this incredible scene, you know, very Hitler in his bunker. Uh, Nixon sits alone in the darkness. He listens to classical music, kind of staring into the night. Then he calls Henry Kissinger. And he's, um, he says, Henry, I need you to come over. Kissinger comes over and they sit together drinking brandy. Nixon starts crying. He sobs. Um, and then he says, Henry, will you, will you pray with me? And they get down on their knees together and they pray. And Nixon is crying. And by some accounts, Kissinger kind of holds him like a baby um, there in the, in the White House study. And then you know what Nixon says when the, Henry, Kissinger finally... Uh, Kissinger thinks this is excruciating, by the way. He's incredibly embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they leave, the last thing Nixon says to him, please, Henry, he says... Please don't ever tell anyone that I cried and that I was not strong. And here we are talking yeah, about Yeah, because tells everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Terrible, terrible behaviour. Okay. So then the, 8th of, the next day, the 8th of August, he gives this resignation speech live on television. Then he sits up, he can't sleep. Uh, and then he actually comes to go on the 9th. And, and right at the beginning of the very first episode, what seems like a lifetime ago, I think it was Stefan Jensen asked, why is Watergate so resonant compared with other scandals? It's because the melodrama is greater. So the 9th of um, August. And punctuated, I guess, by kind of certain points that people can tune in to find out what's going to happen. Exactly. So he assembles all the White House staff, his family. 
he comes out on this platform and he gives a farewell speech in which he breaks down again and again. He, he just, he hasn't slept for days. He just starts rambling. He talks about his father, a little man, they would have called him a kind of common man. He talks about his mother uh, who lost two sons. She was a saint, he says. She was a saint. He reads from Theodore Roosevelt's um, memoir about when his wife died, comparing himself basically to somebody who's been bereaved. And then he gives this, I always find, I know lots of people will laugh at me about this. Uh, I always find very moving. He says, um, his final words, virtually his final words, he says, you know, the greatness comes and you're really tested when you take some knocks, some disappointment, when sadness comes, because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. Very wow. sort of Shakespearean. Wow. Very, very Shakespearean. And then he goes off to the helicopter, the V signs, and flies off um, to California. And that's the end. That's okay. farewell and to I think, And I think it's farewell to the first part of this second episode. This is only the first part. When, oh, my God. I thought you were going to say this. Yeah, it is. <laughs> no, no. So, so, so when we come back, and, and I know this is going to be agony for you, but yeah. I think we've got to compress quite a lot. We need to look at how... Uh, he, get, he gets his pardon and the long-term effects okay. of the scandal, whether it had long-term effects. So we will see you back after the break. See you after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to the second part of our Watergate-themed uh, series on uh, the rest is history. Um, Nixon has resigned. He's flown off in his helicopter to California. Uh, Dominic, we have a counterfactual here um, from Roy Nelly. Yeah. Uh, and he asks, 
How does US political history play out in a world where Ford doesn't pardon Nixon? Okay. Presumably Ford is easily re-elected and no Ronald Reagan. So Gerald Ford is the vice president yeah. uh, under Nixon, therefore automatically succeeds him as president, and he pardons Nixon. What happens if he doesn't? He was always going to pardon Nixon. Um, I don't think there's a scenario in which he doesn't pardon Nixon. Ford, I, I like Gerald Ford, the only president, of course, to have appeared in a Pink Panther film, in Pink Panther Strikes Again. <laughs> Um, <laughs> really? yeah. Big golfer, wasn't he? Uh, he was. A, really he was very. He was a very sport. Weirdly, everyone remembers him for falling over, but actually, he's the most athletic president in American history. He's a very, very good sportsman. Um, I like Gerald Ford a lot. Actually, he's he used to go on holiday, of course, with, Je- okay. with Jim Callahan. Um, so, Ford pardons Nixon a month after Nixon leaves. He has to pardon him. I, I, almost everybody around him says we cannot have Nixon's trial hanging over your presidency it will defeat everything you want to do it will t- completely torpedo any possibility you have of winning re-election not the, i mean or rather election and um legal advisors also say nixon uh, he will if he's convicted he will almost certainly appeal and he will probably have reasonable grounds because he will be able to say it was impossible for him to have a fair trial because he's been prejudged in the press and because there'll be no possible juror who is unaware of the the scandal. Um, So it will be very difficult. Nixon's also in atrocious health. So Nixon has phlebitis in his leg, which he's allowed to get worse and worse in the course of 1974. Um, A lot of people think that Nixon basically had a suicide wish at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. So he's also getting advice from people who know Nixon that say Nixon may well kill himself if you... Um, allow him to go to trial if you don't pardon him. Ford also is told, has got legal advice, that the acceptance of a pardon carries an imputation of guilt. Of guilt, yeah. Okay. Um, and what, what, what is Ford's relationship with Nixon? I mean, had they got on No, well they weren't very close. So Ford wasn't actually Nixon's first vice president. Nixon's first vice president, a man called Spiro Agnew, um, who'd resigned because he'd been taking kind of kickbacks when he was governor of Maryland. Spiro Agnew, he hated hippies. Spiro Agnew is a great... I, I love Spiro Agnew. He's like a sort of Daily Express columnist. Um, yes. <laughs> he, he goes around... He talks about the nattering Were, nabobs... Even worse than Daily Mail ones. Yes. Uh, nattering nabobs of negativism. I always like his... He attacked uh, the... Lib- he talks about you, Tom. He said um, liberal inter- liberals were... Um, what did he say? Uh, an, uh, an effete core of impudent snobs who characterised themselves as intellectuals. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, me to a T. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, Ford probably okay. So, was always so Ford, Ford pardons him. Yeah. Ford pardons yeah. him. Nixon doesn't die. Yeah. Um, he goes he to talk to David Frost. With, talks yeah. to David Frost. David Frost gets it. Yeah. So, 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 so that's Watergate. Yeah. But I think that that um, we've had a lot of questions about the the impact um, and why it had this resonance. So, just for example. Um, Barry Grogan, why does Watergate continue to be so famous, have such staying power? There have been much more serious presidential scandals such as Iran-Contra or Trump's actions before and on January the 6th. I mean, would you agree with that? I would, actually. I think Iran-Contra, certainly. Uh, Reagan was running an illegal foreign policy that had been basically explicitly banned by Congress, giving aid um, to the Contras in Nicaragua. Uh, He's What is he doing? He's secretly... um, trading arms for hostages it's much more serious than watergate which is basically a caper i mean watergate really is a caper the a ludicrous mm-hmm. um you know the bug okay the bugging of the democratic national committee is not good it's it breaks the kind of democratic norms 
But it's not the end of the world. And it certainly doesn't compare with the Trump okay. supporters storming the Capitol. That's that's absolutely. I mean, they're not okay, in the same so, league. So, 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 so obviously, I guess the the impact of of Watergate on America's standing in the world is is not positive. Uh, I mean, it, yeah, it, 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 it's not good for America. But you could, couldn't you argue that actually it it shows how important the rule of law is? Yeah, of that, course you could. That something so small can bring down. You know, the president of the United States. You could argue, Tom. And you can imagine this kind of thing going on, you know, in other countries and nobody would bat an eyelid. Isn't Nicolas Sarkozy just been sentenced to prison in uh, in France? All kinds of stuff. I mean, yeah, you're right. I I mean, you could argue, I think it would be a reasonable argument, actually, that it reflects well on American politics. That the system works. The president has been... It's not above the law. It's not above the law. He's been party to wrongdoing. He's tried to cover it up. And he's been caught and he has been forced from office. I mean, I think you could absolutely make that argument. I think one reason it's so resonant, going back to that first episode we did, it happens in the context of the late 1960s, Vietnam, a general loss of trust, an economic downturn, a crisis of authority generally. And, mm-hmm. it, see, and, and, and it feels like part of a bigger story. I mean, scandals always resonate. We talked about this in the Thorpe episode. Why do scandals resonate? They resonate if they express a, uh, they, if they see they're seen as symptoms of a wider disease. If they are kind of windows into a bigger story, and Watergate and is exactly also, one of those. Perhaps also if they do have a slight element of the comic, yes, that can that yeah. can kind of hook people, so that you have all the drama and the tension, but there is also the slight element of slapstick. Although I don't think that, actually that the, the, what strikes us now the slapstick elements. I think at the time, a lot of Americans didn't find it funny. I think they were genuinely shocked about the swearing in the Oval Office and about the kind of characters that Nixon was associated. I mean, they didn't view it as we do in our sort of cynical, flippant way. They thought, right, okay, this is because they really venerated the presidency. I mean, I don't think that's just Dominic. Yeah. So that leads on to another question from Duncan Simpson. We now live in a society where there is constant scandal in the news and the proven lies from our from our leaders are met with very little uproar how much did watergate change the idea of faith in our leaders and an expectation of them being good people yeah i think it definitely damaged um definitely damaged americans faith in the presidency i mean there's a sort of that's one reason they turned to reagan actually in 1980 i think there's a thirst for somebody who you know will restore as people see it the grandeur the kind of regal magnificence of the presidency. And is that why Reagan is able to weather the yeah, Iran-Contras? Scandal? I think absolutely. Because there's people no, just didn't want there's no to, appetite to, for it. They just didn't want it. Yeah. But then it does, you see, then you do have the Clinton impeachment um, in the 1990s. Um, and that is seen as kind of, I mean, certainly Democrats see that as Republicans deliberately trying to get revenge for Watergate. They absolutely do. Um, because people point to the fact that Hillary Clinton had been working for the special prosecution team in 1974 although of course i think always think with the clinton impeachment you know everybody's for 20 for you know 10 15 years people said ah it's nothing it's a storm in a teacup you know it's just a republican concocted um and now i think people post kind of me too don't you think people look at that clinton and Lewinsky, and think "Mm, that was actually pretty shabby i don't know i i i mean i think it's hard to take the the Republicans of that period. Seriously, you're right. Yeah. Kind of woke gender warriors. Yeah. That's very true. Well, especially as most all. of them ended up, you know, being brought down by the, <laughs> by the impeachment exactly. business as well. Um, exactly. Yes. I mean, I think, but I mean, but, but one thing that I do think is, is a, 
uh, you could argue a dangerous legacy of Watergate is the tendency to kind of criminalize presidential politics. So, you know, America has had a lot of impeachments now compared with the previous hundred years or so. Um, well, Dominic, do you remember that the the very first episode we recorded that in the end didn't go out because we weren't very good on Yeah, it. where we just lectured we, we, each other. We were doing, I mean, nothing's changed. Well, well we... <laughs> <laughs> we we but we did a comparison between ancient Rome and modern America. We really recorded it. We did that put it out. A, one, one of the things that happens in ancient Rome is is that um, the law becomes a weapon yeah. in kind of political rivalries, and the chance to to prosecute and drag down a rival kind of contributes to the turbulence of the late Roman Republic. Yeah, and, and would you see the same thing happening? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, actually, and and it's interesting because when once you get to the Trump impeachment, that unlike the Nixon impeachment, which obviously didn't reach its culmination, the Trump impeachment, certainly the first one, was absolutely perceived in terms of party politics, wasn't it? I mean, nobody mm. it, it divided on partisan lines except for Mitt Romney, I think, and nobody there was no sort of sense of the rule of law being a standard above petty partisan politics which i think there well, was, I mean, was in 1974 it, it, i mean it was basically you know we've got to stand up to russia or we've got to stand up to china yeah and so that was it was also a kind of policy divide wasn't it well um, i suppose um but it was also just purely seen as a referendum on what do you support trump or do you not support him okay so stefan Yedson, friend of the show but is being a little bit greedy here i'm not going to deny because this is his second question yeah but in two episodes though i mean yeah it's a, yeah well all right um, but it's a good question, so we'll forgive him. Would Trump have been impeached if he did the exact same thing today? To what extent have cross-partisan norms and trust been eroded to the point that there is almost no limit to what a party will accept from their president? That is or, an, I suppose, that, conversely, to what, what an opposition will do to bring down a president. Yeah. That's, that's, a really, that's a really excellent and actually slightly um, disturbing question because I think Stefan's implication is probably right. That... Uh, Trump certainly would have said, everybody does it, you know, fake news, the media, how many Republicans would have fallen into line behind him? Well, I think you just look at the reaction, you know, he, he got away, he, he was not in, he was not convicted in the second impeachment after the storming yeah. of the Capitol. I mean, well, if you won't, yeah, if you won't convict him for that, you'll never convict him. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. that's your answer, yeah. I think, isn't it? That, that I think um, any president, I'm sure it probably works the other way around as well, by the way. I, and when you, once you have a hyper-partisan political environment, then it becomes impossible to appeal to some sort of sense of the rule of law that transcends well, politics. Well, kind of loser, loser, loser's consent has basically, yeah. has basically gone in America, yeah. now, hasn't it? I mean, would that be too much of an exaggeration? No, I think... And, I mean, and, not and entirely, I think, obviously. Um, and I think Clinton, I mean, is I where you, that, Clinton is where you saw that. There were lots of Republicans who viewed Clinton as an illegitimate president, even though he'd won the 92 election fair and square. He was re-elected in 96. But there were a lot of people who just thought, we have to get him fair means or foul. Yeah. Um, and uh, okay, so this yeah yeah go on. so there's there's, there's an absolute train of uh, within American politics that you can see, but there's also and this is, this is again a great question from Bartman 1981. To what extent have the many films on Nixon and Watergate influenced and perhaps misinformed the public perception on the subject? And I would like to expand that to say, um, to what extent has the the idea of paranoia, of conspiracy, of covers up. That, that has become a massive part of, of popular American culture. To what extent do you think that has corroded 
the the norms of american democracy yeah i think that's a really good point tom um i think they probably it's it has corroded undoubtedly the idea of the corrupt establishment uh sinister forces all that stuff i mean that actually that's already there before watergate happens um it's it's kind of in the air there's a whole load of films from the early 70s there's obviously all the president's men there's a film called uh the conversation i think that's 1972 that's about taping uh gene hackman there's a film called the Par- brilliant film called the parallax view about assassinations again 1974 and there is this sort of sense of american cinema in the early 70s being very paranoid and all about conspiracies and and stuff um uh, yes, of course, it's. It, it, I think it probably is damaging. It reflects a general loss of faith in authority that had a lot to do with Vietnam. Um, but obviously, as we now know, because we have it in Britain, everywhere in the Western world has it, goes beyond that. But uh, don't you think it's damaging? I think, it, of course, I mean, you and I can joke about it in a sort of flippant way and say, oh, we love conspiracy theory films. But they do matter. I mean, they do affect the way people think about politics. Well, I was kind of thinking that the, the backdrop to the Clinton impeachment was um, uh, X-Files. Yeah. Which ostensibly was about aliens, but, but actually was about kind of cover-ups and that you can't trust the government and that um, nothing is true. Um, and that actually that did kind of provide, a, you know, its popularity was obviously buying into a sense that you can't trust anybody yeah. in government. Yeah. And that's always been there in America to some extent because America's obviously founded on a distrust of government i.e of george the third and the anti-government spirit um i mean what the historian richard hofstadter famously called the paranoid style in american politics the sense that so they is, had in there that's always yeah. been there initially it was catholics out to get them and and then it was so communists that, but is that does that answer the question then of why watergate has has had this kind of massive impact is that actually it kind of goes with the grain of what quite a lot of people in the United States kind of suspected about the doings of government. Yes, I suppose so. And I suppose one thing that's interesting about the American reaction to it is had it happened in France, you know, there'd have been an awful lot of shrugging and people sort of saying, yeah, well, that's what politicians <laughs> do, you know, kind of. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, French politics is incredibly corrupt, right? I mean, Sarkozy, Chirac, Mitterrand, you know, list as long as your arm. Um, but there is also that kind of, you know, what the Quaker and Richard Nixon would have recognised, that kind of sense of we're a clean, living, sober, Protestant, godly people, and we should be a, we're a shining city on a hill. We sh- I mean, lots of people said this during Watergate. We should be the example to the world. We're America. We don't do this. You know? This isn't America. Yeah. <laughs> yes. As everybody yeah. said, as everybody said yeah. after the Capitol um, insurrection, didn't yeah. they? This is not America. Like, well, it kind of is. <laughs> kind of is now. <laughs> yes. OK, well, I th- coming to the close, but l- let's just turn it back to Nixon himself. Yeah. Um, so this is a, a kind of question that's been shadowing the entire both both episodes, really, which is how do you think he would be judged had Watergate not tripped him up? Would he be re- remembered as... As, as an impressive president. I think he would, actually. Uh, and do yeah. you think that, um, that Watergate has, has kind of tarnished the memory of the achievements that he, he, he could clock up? Um, because he's seen as a kind of evil person. I mean, tricky dicky. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, the, hunt, the Hunter S. Thompson that we began episode one with, you know, that he, he is a kind of you know, a moral 
turd floating in the sewer. <laughs> right. I mean, that's very hard. Very, very, very strong. Harsh. I think that's very, yes, I think people, but there's also a comic sense to Nixon, isn't there? I mean, people have Nixon on T-shirts or they have kind of the very image of Nixon with his kind of jowly face. Yeah. bowling or something is seen as 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 amusing and kind of retro uh always it's funny on the simpsons yeah exactly and he was on um uh he was often on a show called futurama kind of simpsons type show um yeah i think um nixon was a fascinating and creative president governing in troubled times he was actually much more liberal often than he's given credit for and in terms of foreign policy you know, had tremendous achievements, detente and so on, going to Moscow. Going so the to comparison of him to Trump. Oh, it's ridiculous. The other thing about ridiculous. Nixon. So I said that we talked in the first episode how I taught this course um, when I was an academic at Sheffield. It ran all year and we met for four hours a week and we went through Nixon's whole career in Watergate. We did it in enormous detail. So this is kind of typical Marxist academics. Right. Undermining of, decent <laughs> right thinking um, ways of understanding. And history. I have to say the students... Um, <laughs> ended it incredibly sympathetic to Nixon. And it wasn't just my brainwashing. It's a, a, one of them who actually went on to become... Well, he a, is a tragic hero. I yeah, think. one of them who went on to become a historian himself, and I think he's at Nottingham, um, said to me... Uh, I can remember him saying in the seminar, he said, the thing about Nixon is, as a man, when you look at Nixon, you kind of look, you see yourself. All his anxieties are the anxieties of kind of masculinity, that you're kind of... You know, there are people having more fun than you. The, the girls aren't looking at you. That the part the sweat gathering yeah, under you. Exactly. You you yeah, you've forgotten <laughs> to put your children's on. You've got the yeah. wrong shoes. You know, yeah. you you don't really know how to behave. You don't know the, what difference between Burgundy and Bordeaux. You've worked so hard to get here. You know, you've worked harder than anybody else, and yet they yeah. will always look down on you and sneer at you. Trying to cover up that parking ticket. <laughs> <laughs> spiral but, all, but, but yeah but exactly the knowledge at the back of your mind the nagging yeah. fear that terrible thing you did which seems so small at the time is going to bring yeah. you down i think there's something so so sort of empathetic in in nixon and if you can't see yourself in nixon there's something wrong with you that's my okay point. well i think that's an amazing note on which to end <laughs> are you like nixon if you're not, there's something wrong with you. Yes. <laughs> top, top, <laughs> top, <laughs> top historian of the modern United States, <laughs> Dominic Sandbrook, has spoken. And on that note, we will bid you farewell. Farewell. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.